0: Well, what's up everybody? It is Thursday, October 4th, 10.07pm, and this is episode 99 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We're almost to 100. We have, trying to plan something special for you, but even before we get to episode 100, we have a very special guest today. um, Someone, if you've been following MMA on Twitter the last few, probably weeks to months or so, um, I've been following for a little while, but we have a special guest in Mike Russell, who's someone I've been looking forward to talking to for the last few uh, weeks or so. Mike, thank you for joining us this evening.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Definitely, man. We are looking forward to talking with you. And, and we also, as always, we have my partner in crime, Shwan here at uh, the World's Greatest dash. how are you doing today, sir?
2: Yeah, I'm just riding on Raphael and Mike's coattails today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> man, we're going to have you joining on the conversation, too. But, I mean, Mike, you've been very popular over the last... Uh, few weeks or so you've had a lot of a lot of different things to say a lot of interesting things to say and uh, as someone who has a journalism and sports journalism background I just want to say I appreciate you and your work man I'm looking forward to talking to you.
1: Thanks yeah yeah it's been it's been pretty crazy the last few weeks we've had some some you know big names step up and kind of shine a light on some of the work that I've been doing so it's been it's been interesting to say the least.
0: Definitely, man. And let's kind of let's start right there. Let's talk about you and your work. Give us a little bit of a background, man. How, where are you from? How did you get started in sports journalism? Let's kind of dive deep into that first before we get into the meat and potatoes of tonight's conversation.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Ontario, Canada. So I'm just outside of Toronto. Um, I started, it was kind of a weird, the way that I started as, as a journalist was kind of a, a strange trip, I guess, um, and, and a weird path. Um, I started working for, I actually went back to school when I was 30 to take uh, public relations. And my first semester, I was on the SureDog forums, and there was an ad posted for a UK-based magazine that was looking for someone to do some marketing work for them. So I applied, and I guess there was, uh, there was myself and another guy here from, from Toronto that got the job, and he kind of just quit on it after a while because it was, we figured out pretty quickly it was non paid. So I was, like, doing stuff like setting up, like, um, uh, uh, meetings with, like, places like Chapters and, and Walmart with the magazine to try to get their magazine into the these, on, on these newsstands. And then they just, they didn't have a budget. So they started asking me to write interview questions for But it was kind of a, you know, it was an eye-opener when the very first I got the very first magazine I go to look and see if my byline's there and it wasn't there because they basically used my questions and, and gave them to someone else to deliver, so they never gave me credit. So it was like, okay, well now I know how this works. So um, I got credit on the next magazine and then the magazine ended up folding. Um, but not before I interviewed the uh, one of the owners of the what was called the Fight Network. I guess you know that that's where Robin yeah. Black used to work and a bunch of people used to work that was when it first started, I was one of the first, uh, I guess, MMA news guys that worked there. So I, I got hired by Loretta Hunt and mentored by Loretta Hunt, which was, you know, that was invaluable to me because she was, you know, one of the, one of the, the, I guess, OGs in the sport that had been doing it a long time. So she gave me a lot of good advice and, and, and tips and I kind of took it and, and ran with it. So um, from there, I guess I went and I freelanced a little bit after, after the Fight Network because they, they cut their budget um, and then I landed at Cage Potato for a couple of years. I was the senior editor there. Um, I replaced Ben Folk when he went to MMA fighting. And then, yeah, I was there a couple of years. And then I kind of did my own thing after that. I, I, last place I was working for that was a paid gig was uh, Yahoo Sports in 2014. But it became clear when I was working for them that they just weren't interested in me doing any original work. And they, they flat out told me that they already had you know, their journalist or in-house journalist was Kevin Ioli. So I left and I, uh, I left because I, I was, it was actually a story on Cody McKenzie that I'd written that they'd said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And then when I handed it in, they said it was too long and that it wouldn't resonate with the readers. So that led me to um, Cody McKenzie actually was treated, mistreated by the Edmonton combative sports commission. That kind of led me to start digging in on them. And then, you know, with, that story took me about two years to kind of dissect and get through, and then it, it culminated with me finding evidence that they hadn't registered a bunch of Tim Hagg's uh, medical suspensions when he passed away. So, the executive director that I'd been writing about for two years, of breaking all these rules, you know, just doing whatever he wanted and, and ignoring rules and regulations, uh, he ended up getting fired, and now there's like a multi-million dollar lawsuit that's coming out against him and other people in Edmonton, and um, he may actually end up going to jail. We don't know hundred percent, but I wrote a story a year before this all kind of, you know, they figured it out saying that, you know, he should, you know, should he go to jail because he was guilty of, um, negligence causing death. So it was, it was a long time coming this investigation, but it, it just took a death or something like that to happen. So, you know, we look at what, what's happened here the last few weeks. My, my other story that was kind of my long game story was uh, a long-running investigation into Ali Abdelaziz, the manager for, I think there's 100 fighters that he manages now, 50 UFC fighters or something crazy like that. But um, I actually wrote my very first story about him in 2015, and the day that I wrote it was the day that World Series of Fighting decided to fire him, I think as a result of some of the things in my report. Um, Ray Sefwa actually called me the morning that they let him go, to ask me about my story that was going up that day just ask me you know the details but they they already knew about Ali's past so it was no news to them it was just you know the fact that everybody else was going to know about it I think just became too much of a PR disaster for them so they at least on you know in in public said they were cutting ties but you know I, I have evidence showing that 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 probably wasn't the case and there was a lot more going on behind the scenes you know that he was involved with but yeah it's it's For me, when I came back from um, a short break from from MMA journalism in 2014, I said I wanted to do something that actually made a difference. Um, And I think I've done that, you know, with with the Edmonton case, with the, I think, where I think the Ali Abdelaziz case is going. I'm I'm not going to say too much about where I think it's going, but I've got some new evidence that we've come up with that we're going to include in the first um, podcast issue, or uh, the episode of the podcast that comes out tomorrow, so... Lots of work. Hey,
2: Lots Mike. of work we've put in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and before we get too far into that, because all of us on this call, on this podcast have worked in the MMA journalism, uh, I wanted to kind of maybe have you touch on the fact that, because I mean, I don't do the level of work you do. What yep. you're doing is really like life-changing, important stuff. I focus more on analysis and things of yep. that nature. Yep. But just like the work you do, it takes a lot of research and time. Like, People think you just watch a fight once or twice and you come up with these stuff. You can't watch it once or twice. You have to really go over stuff yeah. to pick it up. Yeah. Could you kind of touch on like because a lot of people think we make a lot of money. They think we're traveling all the world. They think it's like covering the NFL or the NBA. They don't yeah. understand the that you're doing all this work on your own dime or around your own jobs or whatever you need to do to make ends meet while trying to provide top end content that a lot of people don't go to because it's like they go to clickbait. Whereas you know NFL fans are very. You yeah. talking about their quarterback of their their organization, you're getting at least 50,000 people, minimum 50,000 hits, maybe sixty, hundred thousand, 100,000, just depending on what team it is. Could you touch on kind of the struggle of the uh, mixed martial arts journalists? I I talked about it with Patrick Wyman, who got out of it after he kind of branched out, but since you're still in it, could you kind of let the fans know what
1: the realities
2: of mixed martial arts journalism is?
1: Sure. Yeah, if if you're going to do real work like this, it's, it's very hard to find somebody to pay you for it. And the, the main reason being is that it's access-based, and it's a beat-based—the uh, the beat in MMA journalism is you're inside it. So, you know, you see all these people at the press conferences that are rubbing shoulders with everybody. They've got to see all the people that they're writing about. Nobody wants to, you know, make anybody angry. And there was a, a quote years ago from when they had the Lance Armstrong investigation into the, the doping scandal and they said that it took basically it took a reporter that wasn't really part of the beat to expose it because all the ones that were inside they were afraid that they were going to do what was called spitting in the soup you know you're not gonna you're not gonna affect your bottom line just because you want to tell a story most people just wouldn't do that because of you know you guys have probably seen all the abuse that i've gotten heaped on me on on social media and everything else it's unless you're getting paid big bucks and it's not really something that most people want to get into. And that's, that's the problem. And that's, you know, part of the, the issue was when I went to to Yahoo that that I was like, well, you know what, I'm willing to do more work than you're paying me for, you know, you're paying me a, a paltry amount. I was willing to put in the extra effort, do like, you know, a 90 minute interview for a $25 story. And they're chastising me for it. That just kind of opened my eyes that they're like, you know, don't waste your time type of thing. So it's, you know, the the game is the way that people are getting paid in MMA, like MMA websites. It's There's too much of an investment to go into this type of work for the amount of money that they'd get as a return on investment. So it's much easier just for them to regurgitate stories about, you know, somebody's Twitter posts or Instagram posts or so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that. But there's not much substance to that kind of reporting because, as we know, it's not always the person that's working the twitter account is writing these things or you know you can't prove it so it's it's very it's almost like shoddy journalism to write a story about something that you can't source like like a tweet or something somebody said about somebody that you can't verify the veracity of but again you know like you said not all there aren't a lot of people that are doing this as as a full-time job i was lucky enough to be able to do it for a while as a full-time job and got paid you know better than some of my full-time unionized highly technical jobs but that's a rarity and if you want to be it's sad but if you want to be part of that where you're making full-time money from a site like mma fighting mma junkie all of those places you almost need to i'm gonna say probably put most of your ethical i'm not going to say you're unethical working there but if you have stuff that you feel is important that you need to tell a story about you probably aren't going to be allowed to tell most of the stories that you want to tell if you work for a site like that because they'll find out pretty quickly that you're not getting the clicks which is not getting the money and the way that they're getting those money from clicks is is not how you think it is they're actually selling us the users to people selling our information to people so It's really dirty business when you really get to the the nuts and bolts of it and i've I've got a story i'm working on now that's going to go into that as well but you know it's all about time and timing and i've got you know probably better to get this ali story out now well there's some attention on it so i'm putting you know some of my other stuff kind of on the back burner until it's done
0: and
2: yeah it's a tough business to get in oh i'm sorry go ahead
0: Oh, thanks. Um, something that's been really interesting to me in watching your work and some of the other work that some other guys like uh, Kareem and others are doing is the fan response. Um, so if you can, can you talk a little bit of what, about what the fan response is within mixed martial arts to the type of work that you're doing? Because I think that that's an interesting aspect of the conversation because it's quite different than how you see individuals react to other forms of investigative journalism.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I kind of look at it, you know, if, if you back up and actually look at what we're talking about in a lot of these situations, especially with the Ali story, it it seems like it's a not very factual story. Like it seems like it's, it's fantasy, but you know, I have all the documents and all the evidence proving everything that I've said, but that's the problem is it just doesn't seem like a real story. So it's easy to dismiss me as being some conspiracy theorist or, somebody that's making something up or whatever because people don't want to believe a story like that is real so you know i i get that but in the same sense you know you start seeing like like weird like cultural divides that come out in a story like this because you know you start seeing who the bigots are and you start seeing who the people that are maybe cheering me on for the wrong reasons are it's it's a weird you know the internet's a weird enough place as it is but when you've got that dynamic to it and then you've got you know there's a religious dynamic to the story that really i it has to be told because it's related to the group in general but i mean you know it's 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 been very strange dealing with all of these different people that hate each other that are fighting over it and everything else it's just you know just how about we just discuss the facts you know let's just tell the stories discuss the facts well even karim's work you know that deals mostly with katarov people try to dismiss it by saying that he's got a bone to pick. And that's, that's my big thing is that I keep getting accused of having grudges because I go after, you know, my, my subjects, I go after them so vehemently with my, my facts and everything that I know. But I mean, I did the exact same thing with, with my Edmonton story. You know, it was almost, I actually, there's a tweet out that I put out. I think the night before I started writing the Ali story that I gave him one more chance to give me an interview because he knew some stuff I knew about him. And I said, I said, you know, Something about how I was going to give the same offer to Edmonton. So, everybody that's saying, "Oh, he's got a grudge or something personal with Ali," I don't. We we do have a we crossed paths one once before, but I was actually brought in by a second and third party to try to help them with an issue that he was causing them. So, that was my only you know my only time I've ever even spoken to him was was through this issue that was happening between someone else, and I'm going to detail that on the podcast too. We've got kind of all the players that were involved in that without that'll detail that as well but yeah it's a weird thing journalism's a weird thing because either people either trust you or they don't trust you and there's no kind of yeah like it's hard to interrupt you but me
2: and Rafi me and Rafi I talked about this before you know how ESPN's getting into the mixed martial arts community is it part of is it part of it that people have a bias or is this and this is my argument the people aren't used to this kind of legitimate yeah. journalism because in NFL you can't just shout something now. Like they have context throughout and, yeah, you these sort of stories aren't common there, but it's a there's a bigger spotlight like there's more money in the journalism. People are used to investigate a piece of ESPN it's like if you read it, actually go through it, it's like it's, it's, it's yes.
1: yeah, Yeah, so and that's
2: too many there's too much money for clickbait. So you think MMA fans aren't used to a certain level of detail, certain level of analysis, certain level of research, and that's what's throwing them off because they're they're just not used to it. It's not the norm in in journalism. If you think about it,
1: yeah, you bring up a really good point. If if you ever want to do a little bit of research, look into Noam Chomsky and look into this is this all goes back to one of the stories I'm writing. Look up the. I'm, like I said I'm a PR grad I've got a, a an honors PR diploma and you know I was like class president I'm on the advisory committee for my PR course so I I study PR quite deeply and and all the different effects of, of what people say and do um, Chomsky was actually a, a, a brilliant mind that dissected how and why certain stories get printed in the media so he, he gave these five filters and and the filters are, dead-on if you if you watch that with an open mind and kind of look at how it affects MMA media it's dead-on it's you know it's it goes by ownership who owns these these outlets and if you look there's some some ownership outlet or sorry some of the, the people that have invested in some of these sites who are MMA related investors so you know there, there are all these reasons why they don't write certain stories so it all comes back to one thing and it's as journalists, we are supposed to be the voice of what is newsworthy. And there's there's actually a quote by John Morgan that um, somebody sent me the other day in, in an interview that he did. And our number one role as, an, as a journalist, at least mine is, as an investigative journalist, is to inform the public on things that are in their best interest to know. So public interest means it's something that protects the public that they know. You know. It's like buyer beware. Well, John basically muddied it so that, you know, he gave it the same kind of the. he thinks about public interest like people that have never heard of what public interest is he thought it, it meant that it was what the public is, is interested in so he said uh, he made, the quote was, he said, is it news because we say it's news or is it news because it's what the public wants to hear, well that's the opposite of what is news, you know, that's clickbait if it's the, what the public wants to hear you're giving, you're feeding that Issue that you know, say Conor McGregor said you know ate a ate a ham sandwich today, and, and people put that up. They're just doing that for the clicks. It's our job to tell people what is newsworthy, and it's our job to tell them why it's newsworthy. It's like, it's like we have no Hippocratic oath like they have in like the the uh, the medical field, but we at least should have you know certain standards that we, we stand by and hold by. And I think that that's that's the issue is that we're lying to people. We're peddling what, what should be known as clickworthy posts and telling them it's newsworthy and it's not. You put it at the top of your, your web page or your, your website and, and it looks like it's breaking news like it would be on like the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times website. and people are going to think that that's what it is. So you know we're we're serving, we're serving people news, it's not news. And it's 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 creating this new fake news cycle. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think that we're very confused about what MMA journalism should look like, and it's it's because of the quality and because of what we've been we've grown used to and, and accustomed to receiving from from you know the media. So, yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a big problem.
0: And Swans asked asked you a uh, fantastic question that I kind of want to continue going into. To kind of let fans know, what is your work process like? Because as you as you were saying, you know, investigative journalism isn't something that you can just churn out on a daily basis. You can't put out five, six, seven pieces a day or even a week that no. take the in-depth research and analysis that come along with the topics that you're covering. Walk people through what a typical, and I use that in air quotes, what a typical uh, work cycle is for you as you're working on a piece.
1: Sure. So – Typically, you know, you get a news tip from somebody and the very first thing you have to do is weigh why that person is bringing the tip to you. So it's almost like a, you know, a litmus test of why. Like, what's the reason they want that story out? A lot of times you'll get a story for selfish reasons. You know, somebody's got a grudge with somebody or, you know, somebody's done them wrong or it's a, you know, disgruntled ex. There's a reason why they want that news out. Sometimes they want money. You know, I've had people that, You know, have offered me stories and they start asking about money and then, you know, you need to just back away from stuff like that. There's a really good guide if anybody's wondering, like, if you want to know where to start as far as uh, ethics go. it's um, it's, I think it's caj.ca and it's the Canadian Association of Journalists. Um, They have an ethics guide and i have it, it ever ever since i started i've had it on my desktop it's it's been dog-eared from when loretta hunt actually told told me to use it i think it was it was directed to her for us to use it by the lawyers when i was with the fight network but you know you, you need to weigh why these stories are coming to you first off and then that's when i just start digging in basically as soon as i start to get you know a grasp of what the big picture of the story is, you start, you know, working your way backwards from there. And then, you know, with, with the Ali case um, I'll use as an example, I, I had very little to go by besides um, knowledge of some illegalities that he was committing in MMA that I was writing about. And then um, the actual story about, you know, his criminal and terrorist background kind of fell on my lap um, as a result of me tweeting that, 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 I was writing a story about him. And I tweeted at him and then I got a DM from, you know, a stakeholder that had a reason for me to have the story. You know, I kind of discerned exactly why that was, and then I started looking into it, and it turned out to be legitimate. So, with that story, you know, I, I had sources that were contacting me on on a regular basis through some of my other stories that they'd googled names for. Um, I usually start with a list of people that I want to talk to in certain situations. So, you know, if I had say a book to start with i'd start with any name i can get out of that book and then i've got you know i, I actually took a um i'm almost done and i, I took a private investigator course so I'm, I'm i'll probably be a licensed private investigator by the end of the year i'm hoping but we'll see how that goes um but i i actually have a few background check services that i use and then i you know i can start from there to kind of find people that are connected to these people and, you know, it depends on what kind of story it is. With with Edmonton, it was easy for me to to do it because the all of these stories were all kind of you know out there, and it was just a matter of me connecting with the right people. So, um, the other kind of I guess positive fallout from me writing stories like these has been that whenever there's an issue you know within the sport that people are like, oh, you should talk to somebody about this. You know, that this needs to get out there. I'm getting calls and DMs from people that are saying, well, can you help me with this, or what do you think about this, or you know, it, it leads to me getting a lot more work in this field, I think, um, just knowing that I'm the guy that's been fighting against certain things like corruption and crime. And, but yeah, there's no really set. And even if you took a course, I think, in, in investigative work, I don't think it would be the same thing. And and the biggest issue for me has been, you know, I've got a family, I've got five kids, and I had to basically quit, you know, like walk away from full time, um, trying to get full time work. because. It would have consist consisted of me being like, you know, a lot of the people that I know in this field where I'd have to contribute to like six or seven or eight different spots. And that's stressful not knowing how much money you've got coming in and everything else. So I do this while working other jobs, while raising, you know, my five kids and, and it's not it's not an easy job. I had a had a young journalist ask me recently, they said, What would advice be that you would give an up and coming journalist like me who wanted to get into doing investigative work? And I said, well, unfortunately my advice would probably be find another line of work because it's not easy. I'll tell you, man, I, my family, my wife, my kids have put up with a lot of, you know, me not being able to like, even right now we're driving out out to get my uh, daughter from a, from a school dance and I was like, well, I'm going to have to switch spots here so I can talk. And, you know, I, I committed to this and, you know, no, no knock on you guys, but it's, you know, when it, when people call and it's a source that you've been waiting on for a month or two weeks or whatever, and it's, you know, law enforcement or whatever, you take that call or you might not get that call. So it's, your day has to be pretty open to be able to switch on a dime. And that's, you know, even with the podcast, I ha- I've written, rewritten the first episode probably four times because You know, I find out that one of the sources that was guaranteed in now doesn't want to be on it. And then I find out that, you know, this story that so-and-so told me here isn't checking out because I've checked it with three other sources. Or, you know, now I've found there are new crimes that I have evidence of that have never been mentioned or prosecuted that I'm like, it's probably more important that we get those out and and get, get the news out about them. So it's... It's tough because, you know, unless you can have five or six stories going at a time and juggle them, which it's tough to do when you've got – like, I've probably got about 200 hours' worth of interviews. I've got about 400 pages' worth of police documents for, for this story. You there, Mike? Can you hear me? Yep, got you Good.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, sorry about that. Um if you're going to do this kind of work, it's not, you know, it's not an easy thing. Even if I was doing it full time, 40 hours a week, I think it would still be difficult to be able to put out a lot of, of work because it's, yeah, it's, it's stuff to be. Breaking up a little bit there, Mike, help me out when I need them. Um, I've got a guy that I, I will hire when I need to, too for certain things because I have had some pushback. Um, I've heard that, you know, Ali's, I do have some lawyers that... So you cut out a little bit uh, there. It's either... Can you hear me now? Yeah, we got you. We got you. There you go. There you go. Okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um. Yeah, it's because I'm just sitting. I'm actually in the car just outside my house. It's probably clicking in between the internet and the, uh, the Wi-Fi. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm, I've been rambling for a while about that. But yeah. No, it's It's no days the same, no months the same, no weeks the same. And there's there have been times where I've almost... I walked away, okay, this is it, this is all I can find, this is all, and then, you know, or you get new information.
0: You're breaking up just a little bit again. Mikey. there?
2: I think you might just be switching.
0: Yeah, you might just be, uh, nope. there you oh, go, you Mike. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I, I like detective work, right? I was going to be a cop at one point. I just like I like solving things. I like the, the the challenge of it. But I mean, it's like solving anything, right? I've got some cold case stuff that I've been kind of looking into that I might be able to solve other crimes. And and you know, it's 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 not an easy thing to do for somebody that's doing it full time. But yeah, it's definitely a I don't know. I think it's more a passion project for me than anything because it's not a not a money maker. Again, I feel good that I've been able to make some positive changes. So I can
2: relate oh, real quick. I can relate to you, Mike. As, as Rafael knows, I I have four kids. I have three fifteen-year-olds and I have a five-year-old. So I understand yep. it's like I talk to my family and they're like, "It shows that you had all these reads. How much are they paying you for this? Or how much are you getting for this?" Yeah. And it's yeah. like, on the side, I, I I work with fighters in camps. So sometimes they'll be in other countries and they'll be sending me messages asking for advice, and I'm like. I might spend, you know, if I have a job in between work and I'm trying to get back to them, they're like, I need this answer right away. And I'm like, I'm not getting paid for this, dude. Like, my job here is paying for yeah. me and you're taking up a lot of time. And it's not that I don't want to put out good content or I don't want to help somebody. But I'm like, this doesn't help my bottom line. And I have kids I have no. to attend to and games you have to go to and a family situation I have to take care of. And it's one thing to disrupt it when you're getting a paycheck. It's nothing to disrupt it when you're getting nothing. There's none of that there's, yeah. that, there's not that there's that's, not that payoff that makes it okay at home. Like, oh well this paid for our van or this paid for our electricity bill. This
1: paid for nothing and it's disrupting our evening. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing about with me, like, and and I'll tell you, man, regret, regrets is that I put so much time in. and with the hard part for me was like I said, there were a couple of years where I made better money than I did at, you know, my, my unionized job. So when you've got a pinnacle of your career where these amount of money, and you know, I was talking to actually a, another reporter on, on Night Game, and he said, you know, he said, you know, I, there's so many similarities, and a fighter, because he said, you know, fighters kind of go top of the world, and they kind of go, and I said, yeah, different between a fighter that started and, and hit the top of his way, and now he's retiring, I'm doing better work than I ever, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not punchy. I'm not, you know, I'm not losing fights. It's like, this is, I got work done and I'm making this money than I ever made. I, I wasn't paid for my work except for that first magazine up until, I got all, you know, way better work. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not easy, man, but yeah, my biggest regret is just people that all this work that I put in for various things that, uh, you know, people did it, and, did it. and you know, it's like shoveling coal into the furnace when the furnace, you know, goes out, and you for it. so, yeah, one, one thing that when it comes down to it, just do, do what's for you. And I, some I, I have problems with some of the stuff I was doing, but is that especially the last couple of years? These stories kept going more so because I kept finding more, and I kept finding more people that were like, like especially being victimized and. You know, this was before Tim Hague even. You know, I felt a certain amount of shock before this happened, but, you know, in the same sense, I, I thought I owed it to a lot of people. They are asking for my help, and, and, and I, I'm not very good at turning down help. You know, again, it go back to that Hippocratic goal, like, what you well, in this sport before? I'm in this to really frame. You know, that's that's the thing that bothers me is that people see on with the UFC at trust suit and everything else. First, there is no, you know, mixed martial arts. There's no ultimate fighting championship without the fighters. And if you're going to treat them poorly, you know, they're circus animals and not people. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very different way around. You know, so much people taking advantage. Of it. It's it. There's no no. It, it doesn't surprise me that it chews people.
0: So, Mike, I want to catch you right there because we just had you, like, you're you're kind of freaking in and out. You said you were clicking back and forth between internets. Um, what I want to kind of segue into while we still have some time here is I want to talk about your the work that you're doing on Ali recently. Um, take us back to kind of where that kicked off. Like, um, what was it that caused you to get so yeah. ingrained in that subject?
1: Like how I got involved with, yes, with Ali? Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, take us back to that.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I was, I was actually working for, um, so I was at Caged Potato until 2000 and I believe 11. Um, so then I stepped away from MMA journalism for about two years. I was still contributing to a bunch of magazines and stuff, but I was I was running um, a crowdfunding site called Fundafighter for two years. And that was owned by, um, partially owned by Faraz the Hobby. Um, this guy called Robbie Stein, who was he owned the building that that TriStar was in, um, and they also owned a management firm, a bunch of other stuff. So they were they were kind of you know heavily involved in MMA, and we started helping out guys, um, sponsors and stuff. And we we did this all for free. So first time I ever kind of crossed paths with Ali was we were helping Rick Hahn actually with with getting um, sponsors for a fight, and um, he I think uh, Ali was trying to get him some sponsors too. Cause he knew him through, uh, the judo scene. Um, and he had a sponsor that fell through. So then we ended up kind of getting him one. And then th- our sponsor decided he wasn't going to pay Rick. So I, I went, you know, I, I went to Ariel. Well, I didn't go to Ariel, but the story got to Ariel and went to uh, Stephen Morocco from MMA junkie. And I was actually quoted in the story. Um, just, you know, just telling them that we're just, we're just here to help fighters, like anybody that has a problem, basically, they can come to us and see what we can do to help them. And then um, there was a fighter that was being taken advantage of by Ali. And um, there was a guy that I knew that was a friend here from Canada that was kind of helping him out with management stuff. And he was, um, Ali was trying to force him into signing or staying with this other manager that it turned out that he was actually partnered with that nobody knew about. It was like kind of like a secret, you know what I mean? It was like we found out after the fact that that's why he was trying to make him stay because then he would have made money off this guy illegally. So we, the guys from fund to fighter actually kind of, um, I I guess you could say it might've been illegal, but it wasn't really illegal because they didn't benefit from it, but they backdated a contract for this fighter, um, just so that it, that they could make Ali and, and this other guy back off that, that it was a management contract. So they're like, yeah, we already signed them. So you can't do it. So, um that was that and then you know we get a call from from the the fighter that was having issues and next thing you know Ali's trying to bench him and he's trying to do all these things to him and it was like you know we're we're like he can't do this you know this is this is not this doesn't seem like legal so you know we battled with Ali a little bit we kind of you know and and we were right we had all the evidence in the world that he was lying and and doing everything wrong but so that was the story that I originally was going to tell because I had you know I had contracts that he had been sending people saying sign over the rights to your fighter to me and i was taking a certain percentage and i tried to battle with world series of well not battle i contacted them back then and, and complained about it and i was going to go further with it and then i just kind of walked away from mma and then paul gift and um uh, john nash put out that story about ali possibly breaching uh, nevada state laws um by being a matchmaker and a manager at the same time and that that came out of they got documents from a world series of fighting global um lawsuit that they had against world series of fighting so it was kind of like a nobody really knew that that's what he was doing was he was breaking this rule or breaking this law well i contacted them and i said hey guys i've got proof that he was doing that you know i've got documents i've got people that'll go on record about it. I've got, you know, I've got the whole story about how he literally was doing this and how he was trying to use other people. And, you know, it was almost like a a pyramid scheme that he had going of other people trying to help him out. So yeah, that was the story I was going to tell. And then, like I said, right on, it just fell on my lap, the other story, because I was contacted by a world series of fighting exec to say, Hey, look into this other story. We all kind of were informed about Ali while he worked here by somebody. Who sent us an email and you know everybody sat in a room and watched the preview for that book that ali contributed to in 2014 and you know i'm like huh so you know i start looking into it thinking well what will i find because they never really told me what the story was just to look up you know my fbi all that kind of stuff and you know i'm pretty good at research so lo and behold i find this book and i'm like wow but the problem was it's just one book I put the story out based on the one book and a couple sources that I'd spoken to and, you know, but the problem was is I couldn't name a lot of the sources that I spoke to because they were either afraid to talk. Um, One of the NYPD officers that did talk to me on the record and all he said was basically he couldn't talk, but don't trust Ali. Like basically to say, you know, everything he says fact check because he lied to us profusely, basically. And Ali called the NYPD and tried to have him arrested for talking to me. So everybody that's like, oh, yeah, why didn't this story come out sooner? I think you're lying. Why aren't you just releasing it? It's like, well, there were a lot of obstacles. There were a lot of there was a lot of interference going on. And even now, Ali has called a bunch of the sources that he knows I've spoken to because I've named them in interviews, not by name, but just by description. And he's threatening to sue them. He's telling them that they're going to get something from his lawyer. So, you know, it's it's. again they've they've got more reason not to talk than they do to talk and then when you've got somebody like that that's trying to intimidate and scare them it's like yeah it's it's one of those things so to me that was it i always you know it was always about treatment of fighters and that was it went back to that well you know now i find out they're more than just this one fighter who ali was trying to handcuff into contracts and trying to screw with their their livelihood so you know, I think it paints a real different picture of the guy that everybody thinks that he is, that all he cares about is helping his fighters and everything else. And I think it's you know it all goes back to is he helping his fighters or is he helping himself? Because he's actually taking money from all of these transactions, you know. Even even the fact that I found these two sons that he abandoned that he doesn't pay child support for, it's like, you know, just kind of it it speaks to the true character of a man. You know, when we're talking frankly tonight. About how you know we're concerned about the amount of time we're putting in away from our kids, and then you've got someone like that saying he takes care of the families of his fighters, but he doesn't take care of his kids at all. It just speaks to maybe the type of person that he really is. So that's that's the story that I'm trying to tell is just the duplicity I think in Ali's life from you know the the time he landed in America right up until now that he's kind of used all the same techniques and tactics to get where he is, and and I can see it all coming back again in MMA.
2: I have a question real quick. sure. Uh, you ever think because even though it seems that he's involved in some crooked stuff and and maybe he's benefiting from these, you know he he's getting some money out of, out of these fighters because because he's got he's double dipping or play, playing multiple yep. roles, do you think that there's a, a certain amount of backlash coming towards you because your thing is I want to look I, I don't want the fighters being mistreated. I want fighters to be taken care of. and even though even if he's getting money he doesn't deserve, He's helping some fighters get opportunities and, and paychecks and paydays that they wouldn't normally get. Like Sajar Eubanks, for example. It's not by accident that she's in this position that she's in now. And, you know, she made a point to thank him and other fighters to thank him for the contract he got him and how he set him up. Do you think there's fans or maybe people people associated with camps who resent you for that because they're like, if you mess up with this guy, it might hurt my favorite fighter's payday. You, you say you're out to help the fighters,
1: but now you're yeah. attacking the guy who's getting them paid well see and that's uh, i my response to that would be simple is he getting fighters paid that deserve it and getting fighters opportunities that deserve it or are they getting those opportunities because of his affiliation with people like Joe uh, or uh, sean shelby and mcmaynard but, and true, but some people problem. some
2: people say that as a fighter
1: some people people feel
2: all those fighters should get their opportunities anyways because fighting such a day dang- i mean i argue this against people who fight But they say it's such a dangerous job and any opportunity they get is well deserved, whether they deserve it or not. Any opportunity they get is well deserved. They put their lives on the lines for us, which isn't necessarily true either. But you've heard that spiel before. So how would you respond to that?
1: Yeah. The bigger picture of that is this, though. This is this all goes back to fair treatment. Well, fair treatment for me is an even even playing field for everybody. And Ali has literally used, you know, uh, I'll give you one example. There was a fighter who basically rolled his dice and they they offered to renegotiate his contract before it was up and that's that's a common thing for them to do they'll do it with like two fights left and then if you win that fight then you don't have any leverage over them right but if you lose the fight they have leverage over you so this fighter rolled the dice lost that fight before renegotiating and they just shut him down because he was asking for more money but it was it was him that wanted the more money but his management then became scorched earth with the ufc matchmakers. so what happens? Ali rolls in and says, Hey, would you like me to contact them for you? And he's like, yeah, great. That'd be great. Gets the exact same offer that they offered him before. And then Ali signs that guy. Right. So it's like, he didn't really do anything that anybody else did, but he kind of abused his relationship to get that. And that's the the problem with that is, again, it's not a fair playing field for everybody. And everybody says, well, yeah, well, you know, you, you get what you can get. Well, then the impetus is and, and the exception is, is that you either get it through Ali or you don't get it through anybody else. And that's that gives another issue is that then he, he gets, you know, the, the image of being working with the UFC. And and he actually testified for the UFC in the the uh, the antitrust suit. He actually did a, you know, a testimony for them where he basically said that they shouldn't be revealing you know salaries and everything else. And that's you talk to any manager. There's not a manager that I know that says that you shouldn't reveal salaries. You know, maybe the ones that are making way, way more than everybody else. But those aren't the people that even care that if there's a union, right? Like, like Conor McGregor will probably, unless he's doing it in solidarity with like some of his teammates, he will probably never come out and say union's a good idea because it doesn't help him. So, you know, there's the haves and haves, not have nots. And some of the haves get it because of, you know, whatever reasons like Sage and Paige get it for because they've got the it factor. You know you've got other people that are getting it on their merits of fighting and then you've got these other people that are getting it just because Ali is you know sitting and drinking or actually he doesn't drink but sitting at the bar after events with with Mick Maynard and Sean Shelby and you know I, I get messages all the time from other managers saying how bad that looks you know that that the guy that's supposed to be hard battling at the table with them and negotiating is buying them drinks or you know sitting and laughing with them only at, at this table all night And it's you know, to me, it's it's a bad look anywhere. If it was any other sport, you'd look at it and say, "Well, that's that's wrong. That's a conflict of interest." You know, and even in boxing, there's certain rules that that govern boxing that we're, we're not governed by because of the Ali Act that isn't really covering us and. UFC is fighting vehemently against the Act being put in place because it's just going to cost them money and they're not going to be able to just, you know, make up rankings and make up titles and do what they want. There's going to be some semblance of actual rules. So I, that would be my argument. If people are like, Hey, Hey, who cares? He's making all this money for people and everything else. Well, you know what? That's fine and dandy. But what about the kids he owes 50 grand to that? You know, he should have actually had to pay that before he got a license in Nevada. All these rules are in place to protect society. They're not just in place to, you know, give Ali a hard time, you know, and that's the way that he plays a lot of things is that it's poor him. But yeah, to me, it's, it's the bigger picture of, of level playing field. You shouldn't have to just, you know, go through one person, or as some people say, sell your soul to the devil just so you can get a chance at something that you should have gotten otherwise. So yeah. long-winded. a you, you long way you of on, explaining on, that. Remember shot you want all the managers that have the fair shot not yeah just leeway there shouldn't be yeah uh, we there shouldn't be like it's like a monopoly if, if you have to go like that's 100 with world series of fighting it was a monopoly and you had to go through ali if you wanted a better paycheck most people did you even look at Vinny Magalesh. if you guys ever get to interview him ask him why he went from calling ali the biggest scumbag joe silva want to be in the sport to less than a month later signing with him and saying how great of a guy he was you, know, you don't flip flop like that. You know, if you've ever been mad at somebody before, you don't publicly tell somebody they're the biggest, you know, POS, you know, everything else. And then flip that like, he's your brother and your best friend. That was just a weird 180, but that's what it was, man. And, and actually I was talking to Miguel Torres about this recently. He said, there are certain people in the sport that would, you know, give up their mother for, to make a little bit of extra money because the opportunity. Well, how would somebody want to be associated with a guy with Ali's past and the things he's been alleged to have done and everything else? And it's like, well, you know what? Money buys, you know, you can you can look the other way if if you're really poor, you're not making much money if somebody's gonna give you money. Some people do. I don't. I've walked away from jobs that you know I've been questionable about what what they're asking me to do for money and i'm just like you know what that's just not me but some people are desperate right so you know i guess i guess it's just who you are and how you want to be perceived and how you want to you know be known in your life it all comes down to that but fighting again is not a sport that i would suggest people go into just because of the the lack of of money that you can make in it unless you're at the top echelon
2: yeah me and rafiel actually talked about that and I, I just have one more thing to say because Fighters is is very individualistic And a lot of people Like, you know, Leslie Smith is trying to evoke change The thing about it is There's two reasons that that hinders Thing is because fighters are very individualistic Jose Aldo, other people talk about Paychecks and managers Until they get paid, then they stop talking Jose Aldo was complaining, he got paid, he shut up Donald Cerrone was complaining Until he got paid, then he shut the fuck up too They all do that, and secondly The main thing is I've in a, I've compared this to a social movement with me and Raphael were talking about this everybody Everybody wants to be the hero like everybody wants to be the name that's remembered and for any movement to go forward somebody has to be willing to essentially take the bullet and die and not yeah. be remembered and be a, a Infantry man instead of the air force guy who dropped the winning bomb or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how to put it, but everybody yeah. wants to be in the get the, the, the benefits and not everybody's gonna win somebody has to lose for other people to win and then mixed martial arts. Nobody's willing to lose on somebody else's behalf. I'm no. looking out for me. We're all a team until it comes time to, to cash their checks. And that's why the fighters are at a constant disadvantage because it's all, it's wild, wild west out there. Everybody, nobody's willing to take a stand because they don't want to lose their, like you walked away from jobs. I've walked away from jobs trying to do the right thing for something. Most people aren't doing that. They're going to get no. theirs and then complain about it after the fact, once they're out of it. When they have no power or no say, then they'll make a stand. Nobody cares when you're on a four five losing streak or you're out of the UFC. We care no. when you were signing your big contract and you had the
1: belt around your waist. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. And, and again, I go back to Miguel Torres because, you know, I've talked to him quite a bit about this. He he was top three pound for pound in the world between, you know, him, Fedor, and I'm going to say maybe, I don't even know who it was, maybe BJ Penn at the time. And, you know, he had a fall from grace. He had a bunch of stuff happen, injuries and you know I'll get into some of it on the podcast about why he lost his camp at TriStar and everything else and you know he's it's a very fickle sport and I said that I said you know it's a very unforgiving sport he said well it's brutally honest he said when you're he said the thing about MMA is that people want to know what you're doing for them right now and if you're not doing anything for them right now, they'll find reasons to cut you down for what you're not doing for them. And he said it's very – he said people are, are selfish that way. They, but the problem is with fighters is I don't think that a lot of people sit and think that these are human beings. You know, people think that, you know, we want to see you punch each other in the face, so you should do it when we want you to, not, you know, oh, great, your, your mother died, or, you know, you, you broke your arm, or anything like that. They don't want to hear these excuses. They just want you to take this guy out of the closet, put him in, you know, like sock sock 'em robots, and that's it. Well, there's a lot more to this than, it, than meets the eye with a lot of things, especially with we're looking at a lot of brain injury and stuff now, right? people are fighting for as little as $300. Some people fight for free, you know, and in the UFC that the lowest paycheck that you can get is about $12,000. Well, what happens when all that brain damage comes and you're already gone from the UFC for five or six years. And, you know, you bump your head one time and, and even though it was, you know, uh, cumulative, you're not getting covered because they can't prove where you got all this brain trauma from, you know, there's, there's a lot more, I think to look at in the bigger picture of things that we don't look at as fans because, it's it's a difficult conversation to have. You know, I know fighters that are going through some really tough times right now from from head injuries, and you know, I've seen even even Tim Hag before he died, like he was he was having some issues. But the problem is, even when you go back to these manage managers and everything that are like you know taking care of these fighters. Well, is taking care of your fighter putting him in a fight that you can make money off when he should be retired, or is it you know there are some managers that don't really care about anything but money, and that's that's the other thing you don't have somebody to put a hand on your shoulder and tell you it's time to retire, then that's a scary premise that we've got a lot of guys that are probably fighting when they should, you know, look at guys like James McSweeney had a seizure was told he probably should never fight again. You know, he was having vision problems in one of his eyes during a fight. And then, you know, I talked to the association of ringside physicians just to get their point of view. And they're like, yeah, we, we say that if you've got epilepsy, you should never fight. It's just not something you should do. Like you could so much could go wrong in a fight. Well then, you know he had his pseudo manager arguing with me that I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm like, I have his interview. He actually said that he, you know, had scarring on his brain, and he, he listed everything. Well, instead of doing the right thing and discussing it, this manager had that video taken down so that there's no evidence on the internet anymore. So it's like you're defeating the purpose of what we're like. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be mean to James McSweeney. I'm doing this so we don't have another Tim Hag on our hands, right? Like it's, it's it's a big deal to the sport to even have a death. And even though it was boxing for Tim Hag, everybody went back to UFC fighter, Tim Hag. you know, that was the, the, the talking point for everybody. Cause that was what he was remembered as, but yeah, it's uh, you know, if, if we're not all going to be caretakers of the sport in whatever capacity that we're in it, then, you know, what are we doing? You know, if, if people don't care about how they leave the sport when they leave it, or, you know, they don't care about the integrity of it. They don't care about the safety of fighters. What are you doing here? Right. Like it's, do you even really like the sport if you're not trying to protect the longevity of it?
0: So you actually brought up something good there, and I want to ask you uh, one more question before we talk about what you're releasing and kind of give you an opportunity to promote that. But what is, when you think about your work, what is the goal? What is the outcome that you're looking to create? Is it just more awareness, or do you want to see action occur from your work? What is the final goal?
1: Yeah. You know, what? I was talking to Loretta Hunt a few years ago, and this was kind of what prompted me to get into doing more intensive investigative work. Um, She asked me what the the piece was that I was most um, proud of that I'd done in my career. At that point, I think I was like nine years in and I was, I had a hard time thinking about, you know, because most of the stuff I did were like feature stories. You know, I did a lot of, I did a lot of news work in in the early days but it was mostly like canadian you know this guy's fighting this guy or whatever it was all kind of very i guess not very it was not in-depth reporting so that kind of prompted me to get more into more in-depth reporting and then you know i I guess the last couple years i've established myself as you know there's different types of journalism and investigative journalism there's there's what's known as advocacy journalism which are like people that say oh this is what should be done me i'm more i guess you'd you'd call my brand of journalism accountability journalism where i'm the one that's calling you know calling these um like athletic commissions and saying hey i found this what are you going to do about it or the governor of of nevada and saying you know this is a problem what what's going to be done can i get comments so rather than just kind of sit back and tell people this is what should be done you know maybe you you should do this or maybe somebody could change it i'm the one that's like physically trying to make change, I think. So like with the Tim Hag case, I'm actually going to be part of their, um, there's a lawsuit. I'm going to be helping the uh, the Hag family with the lawsuit against the city of Edmonton. So, you know, stuff like that. I think that it, as far as I was actually talking to someone today about, you know, the last, my website was two subjects and it's been three years that I've had it up. But this, you know, person that's in the MMA community that's been around probably longer than I have been, said, well, it's a pretty good legacy for you to have that, you know, in, in your three years of writing independently, you've basically like proven wrongful death, you've had two dangerous people removed from their jobs, you've had, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you've done. And you know, that's only two stories. Imagine if you can do this full time. So that's kind of my goal is that, you know, if I can do it, I want to be able to maybe do it more full time. And, you know, if, if my fundraising campaigns take off and I can do it too. I'd like to bring guys like Karim in and we've, we've talked about, you know, bringing him on to do some work for me. And, you know, if, if, if we became the number one stop for investigative journalism, that would not at all you know upset me because that's kind of what I've always wanted to do. But I never really wanted any contributors before because I couldn't afford to pay them. And I said that I wouldn't let anybody ever work for free. I had offers, you know, all the time from people saying, Hey, could I come and write for you? Or, And I just said, well, first of all, it's kind of just my site right now. And, you know, I don't want to just kind of stick stuff on just because, you know, you want to do a fight preview and it's not really kind of the the brand of journalism I want to do. But if I could do it, I'd love to be able to bring on, you know, I I was an editor for a few years, like a senior editor where I I had my own news team or sorry, my own contributor team that, you know, I mentored. That's something else I've always wanted to do was, you know, and, and I do it. I get people like all the time, like young journalists, like, like emailing or texting or dming and asking advice i'd love to be able to take some some you know some kids under kids you know kids or grown adults under my wing and show them kind of you know my style and how i do you know what i do so i'm definitely not like i'm not the expert or the be-all and end-all but i've got I've got a pretty good grasp of how you do it and, and, you know, some, some tricks and stuff that I can teach people. But I just think that, you know, if, if, if we started a more of a movement, that this is the way that journalism should look like in MMA, then, you know, that's, that's how we change things. So that's my goal is to kind of, you know, hopefully let people know that you don't have to just be happy with what, what you've got. You can, you know, you can, you can kind of vote for what you like by going and, and supporting people like me. So, yeah it's not a uh if it doesn't work out then unfortunately I'm probably going to step away and it's not you know everybody's like, oh don't make threats that you won't keep and everything else well, you know what i think i'm i'm forty two and I think I've the last three years having to i wouldn't say having to do it for free but the fact that i've i've put out all that I have for free um you know I just can't do it anymore for free so whatever i do make from my from my crowdfunding campaigns will be that'll kind of dictate how much effort i put in so you know it's not i'm it's it's growing and it's it's getting there but it's you know i i basically as it is right now i have enough that it would maybe cover me for like maybe a week of work if i was lucky maybe half a week of work uh-huh. so you know, it's not wow. definitely not a, a month's worth of work from from what I'm making on on Patreon right now. So, it, you know, I, I see once everything's released, it'll probably go up because everybody's kind of just supporting me on blind faith right now because all I put out is a couple preview videos and you know some of the info that they've read on Twitter and stuff. I think once the actual product is out and people start listening and talking about it and stuff, and um, very first episode for sure is going to be free. We might even put out like because it's not. Typically, it's not actually an episode of the actual podcast. It's more of a, a primer and a prequel. Um, it's going to be free, and we haven't decided if actually episode one will be free as well. So lots, lots of stuff coming. We've got about um, at least six to ten episodes planned just on this one season, on this one subject, Ali Abdelaziz. So it's, uh, it's going to be a pretty big one, but I think that was the only way to do it was to break it down into digestible pieces. And for me to tell the story so I kind of, you know, you don't have to really look up who all these groups are, these people are, I'm going to be the one that kind of guides you through that part of the story and, and explains all the, the, the intimate details of everything that I've learned in the last three years.
0: So that's a perfect segue there. Let us know where we can find your work, where we will be able to find your work, when sure. it's ready to launch, and how we can support you going forward uh, now and in the
1: future. Sure. Sure. So you can always, you know, I, most of my updates are always going to be on Twitter. So it's Twitter backslash Mike Russell, M M L one word. Um, I've got a Patreon page that I just started. It's, it's definitely not finished, but I keep adding um, I've actually had a bunch of incentives added. So we've got, you know, a bunch of signed cards and stuff that I've had that were donated from, from one of my backers who's, you know, there's no conflict there because he's just a fan that decided he was going to send me a bunch of stuff. Um, I've got some other signed stuff that we're going to give away. Um, we've got for certain tier levels, some of the giveaways will be like fine art postcards. And, you know, there, there's some interesting stuff that is on there that we're going to be adding more stuff, but you know, for a $5 buy-in, you get access to all of the podcasts, which is probably worth its weight in gold because there are going to be at least four episodes a month that you get for that $5. So, you know, for less than, than a cup of coffee or a, a newspaper, you're going to be able to listen to a forty-minute to one-hour investigative serial podcast. So, you know, it'll be like in the same style as like Serial, or um, I don't know if you've heard any of the the other podcasts like uh, Caliphate or Dirty John, or there's a whole host of serial-type investigative uh, podcasts. So it's going to be again it's going to be confusing to people because nobody's done this in MMA yet. All the, all the podcasts are typically, you know, people talking like this, which is not to take away from that's where some of the best, you know, conversations that I've heard have been just people talking about the sport and their passion coming through. But for me to be able to tell this like a news story had to be done with um, like a scripted narrative and telling the story filled in with actual interviews from, from all of the different players in the story. So yeah, you can um, you can if if you're wanting to support it, there's Patreon backslash Real Fight Stories. Um, I've also got somebody requested that I set up what's called a pay, PayPal.me account. So for that, if if you know you just want to give a little bit of money there and not have to worry about the monthly payment, or you know you just want to just want to dig in, we will give you access depending on you know if you if you make a a contribution that way too. So it's PayPal.me. Backslash Real Fight Stories as well. So, you know, all of those channels um, are will be where you'll be able to find most of the info. I'm going to have my actual website, which is RealFightStories.com, back up soon. Um, I'm going to probably add some forums there. We've got some other stuff that we've been working on that we're going to probably add. But I took it down to do some um, some changes to it. But I also I knew that there was some factually incorrect info that I have since been able to confirm was, was false. That was written in one of the books that Ali contributed to. So I thought, you know what, I'll just keep these stories down and then just retell them the right way um, from start to finish with the podcast. So I think that's probably what I'm going to do. I I, I may or may not put the other stories back up, but I know for sure that I'm going to correct a lot of the facts that were incorrect with the podcast. So yeah, that's, that's how you can get at me. Um, I have Instagram as well. I think Mike Russell, MMA, I don't use it as much as I should, but yeah, any way that you need to get in touch with me, I'm usually pretty good at getting back to questions too, because people have a lot of questions about the podcast and, you know, what it's going to entail and stuff. So I try to get back to as many people as I can, but if I don't, don't take it personally, just send me another message. Well,
0: I just wanted to say again, man, thank you for taking the time to join us today. And as always, thank you for your work, man. You're doing some great stuff out there, and there is a place for your work. Um, I'm going to make sure that I support you, and hopefully everybody else will, because I definitely think you're needed in the world of MMA and sports journalism.
2: I yeah, appreciate it, guys. And, Mike, uh, yeah. I, I I, I understood your point of view Like when we were talking earlier. I just I just know how people's line of thought works, so I'm like, yeah. this is the question they were. If he was there, so I'm just going to hit him with it so he can address it. So, so moving forward, maybe it clears up some questions or concerns about where you're coming from and why you're coming from there. Because oh, I, yeah. I follow you yeah. on Twitter. I see the line of thought. So I'm like, I'm going to take the point to, to bring the question to him so people won't be like, oh, they're dancing around
1: things. They're not yeah. coming right yeah. with questions. Absolutely. No, and yeah, I understand. I, I knew that. I knew it wasn't like a personal or anything like that. You're devil's advocate. But again, man, that's the thing. Like, should you have to go, you know? just because it's the devil you know and and it's the the person that they're telling you you have to deal with you so you have to make that deal with the devil and that's what a lot of people said is that they didn't want to make that deal and then when they didn't when they didn't especially through world series of fighting when they didn't sign through ali they were punished for it so you know it it creates this kind of fear in mma that people are kind of tied to it's either you play game play play the game with the people they tell you to play it with or you don't get to play at all and that's you know, again, that, that goes back to, you know, things that you'd see in organized crime where it's like you have to deal with a certain agent. So to me I just want everything to be on the up and up and I want everybody to have the same chances and, and opportunities without having to, you know, deal with certain people because that's it's it's like a monopoly that way.
0: That's definitely very true, man. So, um, with that in mind, uh, I just want to say thank you again. We're gonna go ahead and uh, continue on with the show, and um, I appreciate you taking some time out for us this evening.
1: Cool, guys. Thanks. I, I appreciate. It. I'm sorry about the audio issues. I, uh, I, if I was a little bit more prepared, I would have had everything kind of underway. But yeah, I had to go pick my daughter up from a school dance that we didn't know she was going to. So,
2: hey, I got kids running around.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm late good. for my okay. own show all the time. <laughs> I know, man. I'm going to be late for my own funeral. That's the thing. There's <laughs> every, Everybody says there's regular time and there's Russell time. But when you got five kids, man, it's hard to get everybody everywhere they have to be at the same time. Exactly. Okay, well, guys.
0: Right, we appreciate you, Mike.
1: Thanks. You too. Have a g- great night. I'll make sure that you guys uh, let me know if you need copies of, of the podcast and stuff, and I'll make sure you get on the list.
0: Will do, sir. I appreciate that.
1: Okay. Thanks, guys. Have a great have night.
0: So uh, that was a great conversation there with Mike. We appreciate having him in on the show. Um, I think that his work is definitely going to be uh, pivotal to what's going on in the uh, future of MMA. I think that I think it's just kind of what's needed in the industry today. Um, Schwan, I agree. Good I, I
2: agree. He was a great guy. Uh, there's one thing I want to say, and this it doesn't just apply to his line of journalism, but to anybody. For people who like these especially the MMA journalists, we don't get paid a ton of money there aren't a lot of opportunities so if you want a, like a certain analysis or preview or articles you need to really support it you need to send it to as many people as possible you need, need to let your money speak or your clicks speak for that because that's how people get better opportunities. that's how people end up having salary so they can do it full time you can't just say I like the content and then not do anything to push it forward because the content can't exist if I got like he, Mike said, he's got five kids. I got four. I can't afford to routinely pump out high-level content when I know I got four kids that need me to be doing something else that's gonna make us money. So you, it's not just on my behalf, but for any person who, who provides content that you enjoy, you have to find a way to support it, and you have to put your money where your mouth is. You can't just say, "Oh man, it's nothing." Well, I got a family. Don't get mad at me. I, I have to put my. Favorite.
0: True, man. You're breaking up a little bit there, man. So I want to um, let's, let's get that straightened out as we uh, turn to a couple of news pieces. Actually, you know, um, let's touch on this quickly. Uh, you know, we have the news that's going around about the UFC 230 main event where we have Valentina Shevchenko fighting Sajar Eubanks for the women's flyweight title. Uh, what do you think about that? Is this the right move to make?
2: Uh, We discussed it. I'm actually, I don't have a problem with it. Sajara actually has a legitimate win at Flyweight. And she already, even though it was in the house, but the house rankings on Tough kind of spilled over into the actual division. So she beat Roxanne Mataferi and she beat Lauren Murphy, who were both highly ranked Flyweights at the time. And Roxanne was a highly ranked Flyweight before the show. So she's got as much claim to it as anybody else. I I think it makes sense. Some people don't like it because it's not a name fight. But as far as legitimacy, it's more legitimate than Valentina versus uh, Joanna. I mean, I don't see anybody can even argue that as far as legitimate sports competition. Now, money-wise, I don't know what it does. But as far as legitimacy, I approve of it.
0: So why do you think a lot of people have are having such a harsh time on this? Is it because it's the matchup itself? Is it because they are no longer getting the opportunity to see Dustin and Nate Diaz fight Five rounds. What is it exactly that you think that they are turning on this so so quickly?
2: I think it's a matchup. I mean, honestly, they wanted to see Joanna versus Valentina. Everybody would have been okay with that being the main event just because of the caliber of fighters they are and the things they've done in the cage so far, and plus the history they have of each other, and they're both strikers. I essentially think that said. I mean, Naden, and, and Dustin are more of a, a more of a high a more even fight, at least by the fans saying, but people would have been okay with Joanna versus Valentina. The simple fact of the matter is Sejara is the one who's going to be hurt by this because people don't consider her world-class and because she didn't make weight the first time, she's going to catch a lot of flack for that. Honestly, to be to be fair, it should have been Nico versus Sejara before Valentina even came into play, but they needed something to legitimize the title fight. So they went with the fighter who's been fairly accomplished in another weight class. It's just a matchup, essentially. That's, that's all it is. It was Joanna and Valentina. You can hear any complaints about this. Not a one.
0: So I think you said something um, interesting there because uh, I do agree with you that even if Eubanks wins, she's going to be marginalized immediately. Uh, I think Shevchenko, Shevchenko can kind of build herself up you know, with that title just because of she's the individual that the UFC wants to promote. They want her in that position. But if Eubanks somehow pulls out a win, at UFC 230, there's no way she's going to get the same type of proper treatment. She'll probably be be in a position that's worse than any other champion to ever hold a title in the UFC.
2: Well, she might have one hope. She is represented by the guy we just spent an hour talking about. Mm -hmm. So she might have, she might, she might have some leverage. I'm not saying it'll work, but she might be in a better launching point than we think she is because she's got that guy in her corner and maybe he's going to make sure that she gets certain, o- o- certain opportunities and a certain amount of notoriety. I'm not saying it'll be the right amount, but she's got, she'll has got she start off at a better point than Nico did because Nico was a champ for how many months and we never even heard them talking about it.
0: Very true. Good point there. Good point. Um, Dustin Poirier and Nate Diaz at 165. Is that something that, that you wanted to see? Do you want to see a 165 weight class?
2: I personally wouldn't mind it. I mean, in between the two weight classes, 170 and 155, there's enough depth in there that they could lose a lot of people. It would open up a lot of opportunities for guys to get title shots and to work their way up rankings because some guys, 155 is so deep, uh, you got to put like a seven-fight win streak together before you can get a ranked opponent. Look what James Vick had to do before he got a highly ranked opponent. It was like, what, five, six fights in a row just to get a a lower top 10 ranked fighter? So I, I don't mind it, actually. I think it's a good idea, um, and I think a lot of fighters would support it, too. I think there's a list of fighters who are ready to jump right into it if they made one. I don't have a problem with it. It's similar to boxing, but these weight cut things, I think, are going to start becoming more of an issue moving forward, and they need to do something to address it, and this would be a perfect perfect avenue, I think, I believe.
0: Good, good. Um, So we have a hell of a fight card to cover. Uh, in this Saturday's event with UFC 220, 229. At the top, we got to go right to it, man, and talk about Khabib Nurmagomedov and, and Conor McGregor. Uh, is, this has the potential to be the biggest fight in UFC history. Um, Dana White is talking about it's trending towards 3 million buys, which some people think is not uh, impossible for them to hit. Uh, and this is a fight that has legacy implications for both men. And it's going to impact a lot of what that a lot of the division across the board. Hell, if Connor wins and he demands a 165 pound division, they're going to make one. So, yep. with so much on the line here, Swan, what do you think is the most important thing we should look forward to or we should watch closely when Herb Dean uh, says go on Saturday?
2: The biggest thing you should watch, really, I think the biggest thing to watch is kind of how Khabib has to react to things he hasn't faced before. On Khabib's side, he hasn't faced a guy with real crisp footwork. He hasn't faced a guy with real crisp hands. He hasn't faced a guy who isn't going to be fearful of taking chances with him. Khabib's usually been in a position where he takes the lead and guys are so fearful of being taken down or him getting his hands on him that they essentially don't fight with any sort of structure, any sort of Layers, any sort of trickiness, it's all very obvious. Big up, wind-up kicks, very big lunging punches, and they try to run away from him. McGregor is going to stick to his plan. He's going to work combinations. He's going to set traps. He's going to be willing to back up. He's going to be willing to stand his ground. He'll be willing to pressure. So the question is, what is what do we see Khabib do against something he's never had a guy do to him before? Nobody's ever had any composure in how they fight him. Everybody comes fighting scared, trying to stay the hell away from him. I don't believe Connor's gonna do that. I think Connor knows he might get taken down. I think he accepts that. He's willing to take that chance to see how tough Khabib really is. Is it be really unstoppable? We're gonna find out because Connor's not gonna hold hold back he's being taken down. I believe Connor's a good grappler to hold his own in spots. And I believe he's he wants to test his chin. He's not gonna he's not gonna be scared off. It's gonna be a guy coming to put some heat on him. And that's something Khabib has not faced as of yet. For Conor, the biggest issue is, what is he, can he handle it when he gets these grappling exchanges? We know how dynamic he can be, but if he's forcing the grappling exchanges, can he maintain that explosiveness? Can he maintain that timing? Can he maintain that cardio? Because if he gets get him out of there quickly, he's going to have to go round after round. Can he maintain his poise and sharpness if the fight goes past one? If it goes past two, it goes in it. We know he tends to get a little bit heavy footed, starts getting a little less snap on the shots, and it doesn't take much. It doesn't take many mistakes for me to basically get control of the fight and basically maintain it. But those are the two biggest points you have to look for.
0: Who do you think is going to come out on top here? Um, this is a. Uh, it's funny, man. Everybody keep, uh, keeps asking me. I keep looking at it a couple of different ways. Um, I think it's going to go one or two ways. For some reason, I, I, it feels like it's going to go one or two ways. Um, either Khabib is going to impose his will and punish McGregor for five rounds, or you know, uh, an, uh, or a duration of four rounds and, and get a late finish, or Connor's going to weather a early pressure storm and then knock uh, Khabib out third or fourth round. That's kind of how I, I see it going. Why is it that people are staying so close to those two narratives instead of talking about this fight in a different way?
2: Because people, it's on Khabib's end, the simple fact of the matter is Khabib's entries and his exits, even into his takedowns, they're they're awful. They are worse than awful. That's an insult to people with awful entries. He is so easy to hit. His footwork is so bad. It is so bad going forward. Edson Barboza does not have good footwork. Anybody who pressures Edson Barboza can get to him. Khabib had a hard time getting to him. He had a hard time catching Edson Barboza, whose footwork is terrible. And worse yet, he actually had takedown attempts. Edson Barboza got off the cage against Khabib. The same unstoppable ke- Khabib wants to get you against the fence, Edson Barboza got off the fence two or three times. Edson Barboza stuffed a couple takedowns. Khabib's so limited, and he depends so much on pressure and physicality and rushing in and overwhelming you. The people are st- saying, Connor's a precision counterpuncher. If you're going to do that to him, We've seen better strikers try that and get iced. Guys with great chins get put away with one or two shots. So if Khabib's going to do that, the automatic the automatic answer is is Connor just going to counter him and wipe him off the, full, the the board? On the behalf of Connor, people are saying I see I've seen Connor get tired against Nate. I've seen Connor get trapped on the fence by Alvarez. We've seen Connor kind of fade and get sloppy at times. And they're just figuring that Connor has really no ground game, which I don't believe. So they can't imagine a world where Conor can defend a takedown, Conor can get a reversal, or Conor can get back to his feet once Khabib takes him down. Basically, people are, to a certain degree, everybody's underestimating the fighters. They don't think that they have enough depth to their game. Now, to be fair, I don't think Khabib has a striking game at all. His ability to bridge distances with strikes isn't really great. His striking is not very great. So to me, the idea that Khabib can't do anything on the feet it's a lot closer to the truth than saying that Connor can't do anything on the ground. Now, he can't wrestle with Khabib, but as far as it's all-out grappling, I don't think Connor's nearly as bad as people think they are. But essentially, people think you have two one-dimensional fighters, and if they can't dominate in their one dimension, they have no chance of winning. That's essentially it. Khabib's a grappler. Connor's a striker. If he can't knock him out, he can't win. If Khabib can't take him down and control him for the majority of five rounds, he can't win either. That's essentially it. We put him into striking grapp- grappler class and we don't think they're capable of anything else and thats I think that's a mistake that people are making
0: I can definitely agree with you there too um, Definitely agree you getting with tapped that. out by Nate Diaz
2: doesn't mean you can't grapple a lot of black belts have been tapped out by Nate Diaz that doesn't mean you can't grapple Vincent Henderson didn't want to engage in grappling with Nate Diaz so you can't take that as an insult towards Conor like you got tapped out by Nate is that supposed to be insulting that's like saying I got taken down by Daniel Cormier he's really good at that So that's a possibility that that
0: happens. Very true. It's a strong possibility that it happens. I think what's interesting is that Khabib doesn't... He doesn't look for the submission so much. He likes to beat people up. And I think that that's what's going to be most interesting for me if when this fight hits the ground.
2: I'm just very curious to see what happens if he actually gets hurt. We've never seen Khabib face real adversity. Even that Michael Johnson fight... He didn't really catch him all that clean. I want to know what happens when he comes in full speed, he eats a counter shot, and it stops him in his tracks. Is he still going to pressure? It's easy to pressure when you're not getting hurt. It's easy to pressure when a guy's afraid to punch you. What are you going to do when a guy's willing to plant his feet and light you up? Like, what are you going to do then? We've never seen him hurt. Will he crack? Will Will he be frustrated? I mean, look at Ronda Rousey. She took some shots, but she was always able to get her hands on somebody once somebody could stay away from her for even a little bit and kind of pick away at her, all of a sudden the same Ronda who took shots from all these people was stumbling around off of jabs, getting busted up off jabs and weak straight lefts and straight rights. You know, we we just have no idea how Khabib's going to respond to any adversity. I'm not saying he won't surpass it, but we have no idea. We don't know what it's like for him to be in a tough fight. And even though I've seen Conor lose tough fights, I've at least seen him fight to the point of exhaustion. I've seen him fight through it before. I have no idea what Khabib's going to do if Conor drops him early, or if he can't dominate, or he can't take Conor down left and right. Mentally, he might break. Everybody says he can't be broken. Anybody can say that when everything goes your way. And Ghana was great and tough when everything went his way. Ronda was great and tough when everything went her way. Holly Holm was great and tough when everything went her way. So was hen and Burrell. What happened when they started facing some adversity? Most of them lost, and they were never the same again. And if you tell me that can't happen with Khabib, I just can't take you seriously. You can't tell me that for definite because you've never seen him really rocked or really stunned. You've never had to see him really work. What happens if he has to?
0: That's very true, there, man. The only other fight I want to cover for tonight is the Coleman event. Um, you know, we've had a good conversation. We've been on for a little while. I don't want to stay on for too long. But the Coleman event between Tony Ferguson and Anthony Pettis, this is a key fight for both men because Ferguson, if he wins, he should be deemed the next guy for the winner of Embargo Madoff versus McG- or uh, McGregor, but if he loses, I think he's out of that consideration. Anthony Pettis, I don't see him as a top contender for either one of these two guys, but this is a big win for him in that position as, as well. What do you think about this fight here, and who do you see coming out on
2: top? One thought, we don't know. Khabib, Khabib's not guaranteed to make weight. Let's not percent, assume that's a guarantee. So one of true. these guys may be fighting for the title on Saturday, no matter what Very they true. tell us. So that's one thing. Secondly, this is a good matchup for for Pettis. A lot of people are going to say it's not. But Tony Ferguson, a lot of his strength is his durability. Physically, his body doesn't break down, and he sets a high pace. That's why he can give up positions, give up takedowns, because he can go in those Gramby rolls and those crazy scrambles because he's got endless amounts of energy. He hasn't been active. He hasn't fought in, what, close to a year now? And he's coming off a major injury. There's no guarantee his cardio is going to be there. You don't know how his body is going to react when somebody's in power. And so Pettis is somewhat limited as a striker. He's dynamic, but he's limited. There's one thing Pettis does, and he hits very, very hard. He kicks and punches very, very hard. That's the first issue. The second issue is Tony Ferguson, in his style, he tries to break you, so he attacks you with your strength. He'll attack the feet, and he'll willingly engage with Anthony, and He'll get it. He'll Anthony Pettis is still one of the better pitchers in the martial arts when it comes to the national Tony Ferguson's whole style is taking chances. He's trying to break you. He's going to give Anthony both chances and power shots. He can have some vision in He'll give him up. He'll give up top of the He'll give up a takedown. He'll give up a spectacular He'll dive in his legs and try and spin it through a leg lock. He can try something new. All those things are going to give answered. Still one of the better. Teams, a of all, I'm sorry. That's all the chance he needs. He just needs someone to give him an opening. Tony Ferguson is a fighter who constantly gives people openings. He's one of the most balanced and well rounded and intelligent fighters, but he fights in the most unintelligent manner that almost guarantees he's going to get rocked, get dropped, or get taken down. He's done it the extent of his career, and he's doing it against a guy who can finish him at any moment. I think this is a good matchup for Tony excuse me, Anthony Pettis. Um, the biggest concern is if Tony's on and he can maintain a pace in his physicality, then he'll just wear him out, wear him out with pressure and activity. But even in doing so, he can't control himself. So to be I believe Anthony be can find it and finish him, um, the
0: All right, sir. We've done a lot tonight. Had a great conversation with, with Mike Russell, um, that was an
2: excellent guest, by the way. Great job on
0: that. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, had enough to cover on this event. We got. I'm looking forward to this card here, man, because I think we're going to have a hell of a lot to talk about next week. But um, with that in mind, man, let everybody know what you're working on and where they can find your work.
2: I just had an article come out on Severe MMA talking about the four reasons that Khabib's going to lose to Conor McGregor. I didn't talk about how Conor would beat him. I talked about how Khabib would lose. And instead of talking about his weaknesses I looked at it from a bigger point of view of these are all the things we know about Khabib that are positives and that are strengths and how they may work against them against a guy who's not going to r- respond to the threats that Khabib poses in the same way that everybody else responds to him so it's kind of a it's giving you an analysis of how how he's effective but also giving you an analysis of how that might be a um, a weakness that could be used against him by the right opponent and that was the article. That's the biggest thing I had coming out this week. I did an article of uh, breaking down Random Marcos. You can find that on Combat Press. I wanted to do more articles, but my computer went down, so I'm kind of stuck for a little bit.
0: I can hear that, man. Uh, it's been a long week for me too, but I got some stuff coming out for ratings. Hopefully, before the end of the week. And you know, as always, I'm covering MMA, mixed martial arts, wrestling, football, same old shit. Just about Saucer, every day,
2: every day of Batman, the week. Badminton, lacrosse. What, what don't you cover?
0: Yeah, who knows right now, dude? Who knows? But with that in mind – it's great
2: to see you next to LeVar Ball on the JBA. Be like, this is Rafael Garcia covering the JBA. LeVar, what we got going on today? Hmm, that's, basically,
0: that's basically what it's going to be. But um, with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close it out, dude. Great show, great clutches. Right. I appreciate your time tonight, and let's get back at it next week.
2: All right, man. You take, take it easy. Have, stay safe this weekend.
0: Have a good one, man.